Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is a unique and precious look into the faithfulness of God throughout the 20 or so years from when Eric and Leslie originally had the vision for Ellerslie, through all the trials, and finally culminating in the official launch of Ellerslie almost four years ago. This message is entitled, The History of Ellerslie. We pray that it would inspire you to live wholly devoted to the cause of Jesus Christ, no matter what difficulties, dangers, or trials lie in the way. We here at Ellerslie certainly can say with the old hymn, Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me. Please contact us at www.ellerslie.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. I am uniquely weak today. Yesterday I spent the day laying flat uh, and couldn't even open my eyes. And I remember I got out of bed and I sat down to finish my notes. I do about half my notes on Friday and then the rest I polish on Saturday. The problem was I couldn't function and couldn't even lift my hand. So I was staring at the screen but I couldn't do anything. And yesterday with my eyes closed, laying on my back. I had a phone right here. Sandy walked through the notes. I had to do it from memory uh, and went through the notes and told her what we were needing to move around, how we were supposed to do it. I fully expect that out of weakness, God's strength will be made perfect today and that we will be blessed in a unique way. And I don't desire to feel like this when I'm up in front of an audience, but I accept it. If it would declare the glory of God, I will more than be happy to be weak. So let's pray and just give this time to God. Oh, Father, this is for you, for your glory, honor, and praise. I ask for the strength. I ask for the anointing to be able to Give your heart to share your truth. And Lord, may this be the perfect message for this morning in every regard. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Well, it's funny, as a a preacher, you preach from down here. And that's the weakest spot in my body right now. So whether or not Eric has a growl this morning or you can see the growl, there is a growl. I'm growling. The history of Ellerslie, a remembrance. The beginnings, 21 years ago. You know that this ministry began 21 years ago uh, with a vision. It was a desire for what many of you in here have ached for, and that is to have someone take you by the hand and say, Follow me up the mountain of the Lord. It's not going to be an easy journey, but uh, there's something more, and we must find it. So 21 years ago, uh, we had, it was a vision that I had. In fact, I found the document for it and stared at it yesterday, because I found it yesterday morning before I went to my computer and couldn't do anything, and I drug it out and set it on my computer, and stared at it. Uh, I was going to give a copy of it so that you guys could see it, but we didn't get that far. But that was back in the summer of 1993, and here's just a little clip from it. 
I have a vision for the generations after me. They need to know the cross of Christ, the saving grace of our precious Jesus, the undiluted gospel that Paul preached, and the standard of holy living. To this end I will labor that the gospel of Christ may not be diluted, that the cross of Christ may retain its offense, that those that God wills for me to disciple may carry this employment unto future generations. The building of the model. You know that I've said to the students when they arrive that the environment that they're coming into is not like some strategized environment where we have sat for years and contemplated what would be the ideal training ground. What this is, it's an extension of our living room. Leslie and I lived this for years, and we basically expanded our living room and got a college campus. And that's what this is. This is an extension of our life. And uh, so the building of the model, the construction of the message, you know, the message at Ellerslie, as I will go through in just a bit, is a very, very uh, specific message. It's just Jesus, by the way, but it's, uh, it's powerful. And it's it, it wrapped inside of its folds is uh, the strength of what Christianity ought to be. And, you know, the construction of that message in our life was through pain, through tremendous difficulty. I know some of the students at least know little glimpses of what that was like for us as we took a stand for truth in a generation, and by the way, a Christian culture that didn't even want to hear it. And, you know, most of the people that have stood against us aren't just the secular community, it's the Christians. And so whatever we have stood for here, it is basically saying there's more. There's more to be had and we can't settle for what we have here. Let's keep pressing on. However, when people are satisfied with what they have and you keep saying there's more, it gets under their skin. The learning of the lifestyle. Learning to have a lifestyle that is built completely around Jesus Christ. To wake up in the morning and make Jesus your focus. To have a marriage that is all about Jesus. To build a family environment where they see Jesus. You know that it's hard work? It sounds just ideal, but it's hard. And there's nothing in this culture that aids and abets it. Every single thing in this culture seems to fight against it. And so when you begin to lay the foundation stones for this, you find that you're going against the grain. You're going upstream. The growth and honor, manhood, and femininity. You know, part of what this environment is built around is this concept of honor. It's a hard thing to describe. In a very simple description, honor is the behavior of heaven come to earth. How do they behave in heaven? How would a man be in heaven? How would a woman be in heaven? Well, that's the way we expect to behave down here. So another way that we say it at Ellerslie is a man being a man and a woman being a woman, which is, yes, I understand, very politically incorrect. We wear that on our sleeve around here. We don't try and be politically correct. We want to be Christians. We want to showcase the glory of God. And it's not with insensitivity. It's not with harshness. It's with a desire to live out Jesus, no matter what that costs us, no matter what it's perceived as. You know that Jesus was politically correct, incorrect in his day? Uh, I, you, know, you could just ask uh, anyone in his day. I mean, even the religious system. He was completely at odds with the religious system of his day, and yet he's the one that created the heavens and the earth. Who should be the one defining how someone should live? Well, I think Jesus would have a pretty clear hold on that, and so it's the same way we want to live. 
We realize that we live in a hostile world, a world that doesn't want truth, a world that loves their darkness, and they really do not prefer light. And we understand that. The principle of sanctuary. This is what Leslie and I called it from a, an early uh, part of our marriage. We called it sanctuary, and that is how we desired to form our home and our ministry, which means protected. It's set apart. Sanctuary and, um, is the idea of that which belongs to God, and it's set apart from everything else. It's, it's God's. It belongs to Him. And so therefore, like the temple of God, it's called the sanctuary. You have different dimensions of it or divisions of it, and the Gentiles could access one part of it, and then only the sanctified or consecrated priests could access the inner sanctuary, and then the Holy of Holies. It was only one man once a year, uh, the high priest. And it's the same with our life. There's dimensions to our life that need to be kept protected. It's actually the concept of modesty, but it's spiritual modesty, where our life is not just available in every regard to everyone around us, but there's certain aspects of our life that are only available to God, certain aspects of our life that are only available to our spouse. And in this environment, we build it upon a principle of sanctuary. We will protect this environment from anything on the outside that tries to disturb it. That's the way I am with my home, my marriage. Someone tries to disrupt my marriage, and guess what? They run into the buzzsaw known as Eric Ludi, the husband. Someone wants to taint my children. What do they run into? They run into the brick wall known as Eric Ludi, the father. If someone tries to taint Ellerslie to come in from the outside, what do they run into? They run into resistance because those that have been set over this environment care deeply about this environment. It's the principle of sanctuary. The conviction. You know that most of us that end up here at Ellerslie share a common conviction, and that is there is more. And if there is more, we must find it. Now, I don't know. if Maybe there's some people out there that are like, I know there's more, but they don't care about finding it. The thing about this environment is we have a whole bunch of people that are here, and they go, I know there's more, and I must find it. One of the ways that we describe it is, I can't, but I must. When you study the Word of God, you begin to recognize something, and that is that you can't live this life out. The law of God just leaves us all guilty. None of us can live out this perfect life known as the life of Christ. None of us. Yet, unless we do, we have no access to Him, we have no fellowship with Him, and we're separated from Him in an eternity in hell. Well, that's not a very pleasant thought. That's called the bad news. So, I can't. But then there's a tension with that. We could just say, yeah, I can't. So, I mean, God will look past that. He knows I can't. The Bible also makes it very clear, you must. So it's not, I can't, and then, yeah, well, you know, God just covers all that over. Actually, I can't, but I must. I must live this life. So how in the world are we supposed to do it? I can't, but I must? That's the tension of the soul that leads us to cry out, what must I do to be saved? That's the tension of soul that leads us to cry out, Jesus, you're my only hope. You see, it says the law is a schoolmaster which leads us to Christ. The law shows us I can't, but it shows us we must. And it leads us to the only one who can do it for us, and that's Jesus. Then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hokiah the priest hath given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. This is King Josiah. And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the law that he rent his clothes. 
You see, when we encounter the Word of God truly, you see, we live in a Christian culture where we don't really get into the Word anymore. We know it, and we carry it around with us every now and then, but we don't know its words. And as a result, it doesn't convict us anymore. It doesn't slice us open and leave us needy. The Word of God is meant to bring us unto a Savior, but you will not go after a Savior unless you know your need for a Savior. And so the Word of God is faithful and true unto our souls when we look at it and when we study it to bring us to our end. Eric, you can't do this. Well, God, if I can't do this, but I must do this, how can this work? Do you see? I did it for you. Letter to the Godly Old Man. This is back in 1993. Old man, living life upon your knees, teach me what you know. I only wish to one day have a friendship like you have with God. How can I live a life of total dependence upon him? How can I find the wondrous truth you have discovered? Old man, you have something sacred that I desire. Will you teach me how to live upon my knees? Will you teach me how to rejoice in suffering? And how to make the devil flee? Old man, how do you stay quiet before the Lord? How do you study and meditate upon his word? How do you pray? And how do you approach his throne? How do you listen to his still small voice? Old man, through time you have been crafted, molded by by the master's hands. Tell me what I must do to find the strength to stand. And old man, what does it mean to be a man? Well, that's my heritage right there. And what's interesting about that is so many of us share a common heritage. It might not have been a man. It was a godly old woman for some of you. But we have desired, many of us in this generation have desired a father of the faith or a mother of the faith that would take us under their wing. And they would say, come follow me. I prayed daily for five straight years that God would give me a father of the faith. You know, and I do feel that God in a strange way answered that prayer, but not in the way that I would have guessed. And that was, Eric, if you're willing to allow me to build you into one, would you say yes so that you could be the answer to that prayer? for the next generation. I'm not really what I would call a father of the faith. I'm a young man of the faith. However, may it be that I could be such a man that God would grow me and all of you into an answer to that prayer. The Ellerslie vision. Every good vision starts with a death. I don't know how many of you have had a vision, but I had a vision for 17 years. 17 years I prayed for Ellerslie. 17 years less than I would set it on the shelf and say, someday. And we were traveling all around the world, speaking and writing books. And I remember we, had a, we felt like it was time. It was time for this vision to begin. And this campus was available, and we had been praying for, I think, two years at the time for this campus. And I remember I received a call in California when we were down there one January, and it was from uh, the college president that used to run this college, and he said, Eric, we've, we've received an offer on the property. See, I had, we'd made an offer, but it was an informal offer. It was only a verbal offer. And because it was only a verbal offer, it wasn't binding, and they received a formal offer, and so they put it in front of our offer. And... This campus, I remember me, I, I said to him on the phone, I said, uh, well, we have an agreement. And 
He said, yeah, but this is a legally binding situation. The board is voting on it early in the morning. This is like six at night. And so I remember walking through the process. Uh, I actually tried to make a few calls, couldn't get in touch with anyone. Because he said if I could make a formal offer by something like five in the morning, uh, then he would take our offer. And I couldn't get it together. And I remember uh, even going to bed that night with such a helpless feeling to pray for as many years as we'd prayed, to see it in front of us, to see an empty college campus right down the road. I didn't even know this campus was here. I moved to Windsor. I have a college campus the exact size we need. I'd like you guys to scour the countryside to try and find a college campus. It's empty. It was right here. To have to let it go. You know, when, when God is growing us up, we don't quite understand all the little twists and turns along the way, but one thing he asks us, trust me. Trust me. The expansion of the vision. I remember God moving in my soul to not give up. But even though the natural realm looked like it was headed in the opposite direction, uh, an organization had bought this that was going to use it for a wedding business. And so Leslie and I would come over at night, and we would, there used to be a gazebo out here, and we would stare at this building, and we would pray. And I remember praying that God would not just have a school, but that out of this school would come forth this next generation's Amy Carmichael's and Hudson Taylor's. The test to the vision. I remember the man that owned this property was put into an incredible bind, and he had to sell. And I remember getting a call from someone who knew that I'd been praying for this property, and they said, Eric, get on your knees quick, because the property's coming up for sale. And I had, I had a buyer that was entering the situation that was going to buy it. And I'll never forget a particular day when I was driving in Loveland. And I remember where I was, I was driving by Panera. Uh, and I mean, that's how vivid this memory is, that I had gotten a call from him and he'd said that uh, he was backing out. And I remember making a declaration in the car as I was driving. My faith does not rest in a man. My faith rests in God. And the God who has begun this work will be faithful to complete it. He did. The relinquishment of the vision. I remember a specific day when I felt like God was showing me that the vision was now becoming bigger than him in my life. And that I couldn't put confidence in this vision. I had to maintain a confidence in him. Whether there was ever a school or not. And I remember freshly giving it up. Laying it on the altar like an Isaac. And I remember a freedom in my soul. Unlike any I'd ever experienced. Because I was free from it. And I fully expected it not even to happen. Which is such an ironic statement. After all that I'd gone through, I gave it up. 
And that seemed to be what God was waiting for. Well, it's a long story that I can't go into, but we ended up getting the campus. I remember we could lease the dorms. That was our option that was on the table. And so I took it. So I had the dorms. This was a huge step because, remember, we'd been trying to get this place for years. I don't know, three to four years, how many years it was. It was a long time. And so we secured the dorms. And then we began to announce that we had a school. And all of you would be right in saying, I think you need more than the dorms for a school. Well, you're right. I knew we would get this part of the campus. And so we began uh, to, I mean, we were strategizing, putting everything together for Ellerslie. Had a whole semester of students coming. I don't remember how many days before the start of the semester was, but it's going to be under a week's time before the semester started, and we did not have this side of the campus. From the bridge over, we did not have it. And I remember one of our board members called up and said, Eric, I think you need to start coming up with a plan B. There isn't a plan B. We're getting it. The day or two before, we secured the entirety of the property. the fulfillment of the vision. I remember this room was full of tables and it was banquet night. We had front table here. Hudson had come. At the time he was five years old. And I remember the first words that were spoken at Ellerslie. I grabbed the microphone. I walked up. I was standing right here. And Hudson came up with me. He's never done that before or since, but, but that day he came up with me. And I remember, even in hindsight, looking back to see that, to think that my five-year-old was old enough to remember that night in God's faithfulness. But I remember I looked out on what God had accomplished. It was as if 17 years flashed before my eyes. And I saw his faithfulness. And I cried for about five minutes. That's how Ellerslie began. Hudson was standing by me and he looked up at Daddy. He doesn't see Daddy cry. And so he looks out at the crowd. And he does this. <laughs> But it happened. This impossible venture, which, by the way, was told to me by more than a few people, more than a few leaders, Eric, this is an untenable model. You cannot do this. You cannot support an entire college campus without a denominational backing. Watch what God will do. Watch what God will do. What we have here is impossible because we have a mix of every conservative, Bible-believing denomination. And if we were a denominational college, we could not do that. Mapping Ellerslie's history with Scripture. I'm going to go through this quick because this is a long message. But uh, I labored more abundantly, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. One of the things that George Mueller did, he can map out his entire history through Scripture and the Scriptures that God gave him. And that's what this is. 
So there's a scripture in 1 Corinthians 15. It's in your notes, and so if you didn't get any, you can grab them in the back. But uh, it starts with the message of grace. You see, I understood the high calling. I'm a very disciplined person, but I could not live this life out. And I was in the cyclical pattern of defeat, and God had to teach me grace. Grace is not merely the hug of God. It's the enabling power of God to live out the impossible life. And that's, if you look back on Ellerslie, that is such a critical dimension of the, of the truths that are taught here. We can't do it. He can. Greater is he that is in you. This is the life of God in us. When we enter into Christ, then Christ enters into us. And when you have that life of Christ in you, life works. Canon, the budding rod, the confidence that we have in Scripture. We live in a generation where the words of Scripture and the mornings of Scripture have been, have been attacked. And many of us in this room don't have an answer for why we believe the word of truth. Well, isn't there flaw in it? I mean, can you really rest your entire confidence on that? And many of us have a very simple childlike answer. We might say, well, I just believe it. You know what, Ellerslie? We know why we believe it. You see, this isn't just some thing where we feel good about Scripture. We know it is the Word of God. And when you know it is the Word of God, it changes your life. Because when winds and rains come and beat against your house and your feet are planted upon a rock, you're not going anywhere. You're stout and you're strong. And that's a huge part of Ellerslie's basis. And that's in number 17. Number four, quit you like men. Be strong. The concept of a man being a man is such a huge dimension. Of course, this used to be called men of honor. And then in our first semester, we had 43 girls. <laughs> so we had to adjust the title a little. By the way, Ellerslie is not a strange and pathetic combo pack package of Eric and Leslie. Ellerslie is the birthplace of William Wallace. And when he got married to Lady Marion, he built an estate and they called it Ellerslie. And Ellerslie is described in the book, The Scottish Chiefs, by the scripture references of Job chapter 29, which is the ultimate man chapter in the Bible. Women have Proverbs 31, men have Job chapter 29. So this is Ellerslie. This is the birthplace of heroes, as we like to say. Quit you like men, be strong. And Hezekiah rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. For those at Ellerslie that have heard the message, overcoming sin, that's a huge thing. Assyria was the impossible foe, just like sin is to us. And yet Hezekiah rebelled against him. I will not let thee go until, that's Jacob's line, as he stood in Peniel grabbing a hold of God, he would not let go. And this is the very nature and the very course that we've walked through in these nine weeks you hold on to God in the dark night. Do not let go, and you will find what only God can give you. He said, go again seven times. Elijah is bent on the top of Mount Carmel, and he knows that God is returning rain to Israel. And so he bends over, sticks his face between his knees, and cries out in prayer for the return of rain to Israel. And he tells his servant, go, go and check for the rain. And then the servant comes back and says, there's nothing. So he prays stands up, go again, go again, seven times. And then his servant sees a little cloud the size of a man's hand in the sky. And Elijah says, it's done. In this generation, we're waiting for the return of rain to Israel. 
and we cannot relent in our prayer until it comes. It is no longer I who live, but Christ. Reckon yourselves dead indeed into sin, but alive, alive in Christ Jesus. He sought, I don't even know if the Ellerslie students this semester got this scripture, but this is Elijah going up into a chariot into heaven. And Elisha, well, Elijah asks Elisha, who's standing there with him, before he goes up in the chariot, he says, ask me for anything and I will give it to you. And Elisha asks for the most ridiculous thing. He says, I want a double portion of the spirit that you have. And even Elijah is saying, whoa, you've asked for a hard thing. See, would any of us even guess that there is more than what Elijah had? And yet he says, if you see me going up in the chariot, if you see it, you'll know you get, you get what you asked for. He saw it. You know that the apostles saw it too? They saw the ascension. And they actually went out and did greater things. Simplicity that is in Christ. Well, that particular scripture has gotten me in more trouble than almost any other. In other words, one of the things that we are more passionate about here than maybe any other is that the fact that all scripture leads to Jesus Christ. It's all about him. It's all for him. It's all to him. And one of the great scriptures is, but I fear lest by any means as though the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. You see, there's a simplicity. Christianity is very simply about one thing, Jesus and him crucified. Awake, awake, as in the ancient days. You see, his right hand needs to stir once again in this generation. We need the power of God evidenced in this world. The church of Jesus Christ can't do it with mere lip service alone. We need the power of God to back it up. Rejoice always. We have a message called Incorrigibly Cheerful at Ellerslie that goes right along with that. By the way, it's a command. A father to the fatherless. We are not made strong just so that we can hold on to our strength ourselves but so that we could give it to the weak. God sticks his Father's heart in us so that we can be an expression of that Father's heart to those around us. Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. The heroes of Ellerslie, who is it that we respect the most in Christian history? I mean, outside the biblical characters. C.T. Studd, the man of dauntless courage. Leonard Ravenhill, the man who spoke it straight. Amy Carmichael, the woman set apart for God's glory. Ian Bounds, the man of wrestling prayer. Charles Spurgeon, the man who revealed the majesty of God. Hudson Taylor, the man of great tensile strength. Major Ian Thomas, the man of one topic, Jesus. Corey Tenboom, the woman who followed the lamb whithersoever he went. Reese Howes, the man who would not let go. William Booth, the man of incorrigible cheerfulness. Man of incorrigible cheer. George Mueller, the man with the faith of a child. Richard Wormbrandt, the man who suffered well. The key to turn over the engine. I remember when we first started Ellerslie, I was being asked about how we handled the different doctrinal issues because we speak straight here at Ellerslie, and yet there's a lot of issues that uh, we need to learn how to handle very dexterously because we have such a mixture of very, very flammable doctrinal themes. And one of the ways that I described it is Ellerslie's goal is not auto mechanics. It is to teach men and women how to start the car and get it moving. 
Auto mechanics has a very, very important role in Christian development. However, in nine weeks, we're not trying to put them through auto mechanics school, but we want their car to work. So we make sure they have an engine under the hood. We make sure they have a key, and we make sure they know how to turn it over, stick it in gear, and put on the gas. And that's what it's about. And the engine is the gospel. Most people, even though we grew up in church, don't understand truly the power of the gospel. And at Ellerslie, we bask in it for nine weeks. And it changes us. It truly does. Reckoning with truth. I remember this semester we had Mina. Mina was the one who volunteered. It's always a good idea to volunteer for that one because you end up with some money in your pocket uh, by the time it's over. But the illustration was, uh, Mina, you have some problems in your life. Where's Mina, by the way? Oh, right there. (laughs) Mina, you have some problems in your life. You see, there's only one door out of this room. You have to imagine those doors don't exist. And it's those double doors in the front. And outside that door, there's some bullies waiting for you. And they've been waiting for you every day. And you've run into those bullies many a time. And we call it the $9 test. And so I asked Mina if she had any money in her pocket. And she said, no. I go, good. That uh, makes for a good illustration then. So when you go out through that, those double doors, what's going to happen? They're going to say, $9. And what are you going to say? I don't have $9. And so as a result, they're once again going to beat you up. You see, this is the cyclical pattern of defeat that many of us have experienced in our life. We go out through those doors. It's just a matter of time. I mean, you can't stay in here forever. And you go out and you fail. You mean well. You don't want to fail. There's nothing in you that's saying, I would like to fail today. However, you keep failing. And so one of the things I said to Mina is I said, I've seen your need, and I've made provision for you, Nina. Mina, sorry. In that back room... On the other side from the girls' bathroom, there's a chair, and on that chair, there's a $10 bill. It's yours. I've given it to you. So then I ask Mina a question. I say, do you have in your own pockets that which you need to pass that test? She says, no. And listen to this. Then I ask her a question. I say, but do you have that which you need? Now, her, her answer shocks many of you in here. She says, yes. So imagine if I said, Nina, have you ever had it before up to this moment? No. But now you're actually telling me that you have it? How do you have it? Listen to this. I have it by faith. Faith in what? Your word. Nina had faith in my word. And if my word is true, there's a $10 bill back there with her name on it. So as a result, she reckons it to her account. It's an accounting term. It's what Paul tells us to do with the truth of the gospel, to reckon it ours. In your pockets, you do not have what you need to pass that test in this life. We'll all just compare notes. We're all in the same boat. But here, let me ask you something. The word of God has spoken to you. It says, when you turn unto me, when you turn and believe, you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are in Christ. Faith puts you in Christ, and in Christ is all that you will need for life and godliness. That $10 bill is yours in Christ, and it's a lot bigger than $10. So my question for you could be, do you have it in your own pockets this day to change the way you're living, to alter the course of your life, and to start overcoming sin? And you would accurately be able to respond, no. 
None of us have it in our pockets. But let me ask it a different way. Do you have it? Do you have that which you need to live different? I do. How do you have it? By faith in his word. The way we say it here at Ellerslie is in Christ. That's how we have it. By faith in his word. In Christ. One of our favorite truths here at Ellerslie and one of our favorite messages to go through. In the scriptures, it goes through 66 things that are yours and mine in Christ Jesus. It is so flabbergasting. Most of us think that the only thing available to us in Christ Jesus is eternal life when we die. Oh, how far we are from the truth. So imagine the building next door being the lake house. Imagine that's Christ. It's temperature controlled air, always 70 degrees. And you're outside in this. <laughs> and maybe it's even worse than this. Say it's negative 10, sleet, snow, icy on your face. You're miserable, you're cold. And you stare in longingly. Oh, if I could only have that. But on the door is a little sticky note. It says, Eric. The door's unlocked. Come in. Have you gotten that personal note to your life yet? Have you seen it? That the work of Christ is for you? You see, many of us have, have done something in regards to that door, and we find ourselves in the house, but many of us have gone straight to the coat closet to hide because we don't want to be kicked out. So our entire goal on this side of heaven is to somehow remain unfound. Because if Jesus found you in there, he'd kick you out. I mean, if he knew how bad you were, the fact that you somehow slipped by his radar, I mean, just sort of count your blessings to stay in the coat closet. What Ellerslie is, is this going to the coat closet, pulling back the coats, and seeing you sitting there. And you go, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. Sticking our hand down and saying, take my hand. If you're in the house, the whole house is yours. There's nothing to be afraid of. Let me take you on a tour of all the rooms. Not just the fact that you have eternal life in Christ Jesus, but there's forgiveness of sins. There's atonement and propitiation. There's redemption. There's sanctification. There's a purging of your conscience and a cleansing and a washing from all sin. You see, everything that you could need is available in Christ Jesus, and it's yours. We here at Ellerslie delight in that fact daily. Uh, you know what I said this morning as I was laying on the couch with my head flopped against the top part? I needed to finish getting ready. I said, Eric, do you have it in your own pockets? Do you have the strength to stand up and get there? No. But do you have it? Yes. I always have it, every time. It's amazing, but if you followed me around, you would know this. I've had to preach without a voice before, and out came something. Out came a whole sermon that was preached. God always is faithful. We don't have it in our own strength, but we have it in Christ. The Ellerslie experiment. Every conceivable conservative denomination in one place. If any of you are pastors, you would know that that's impossible. It is impossible. Do we have it in our own strength to pull this off? No. You know what conservative denominations specialize in? Division. That's what they're good at. 
You see, the liberals don't have clear dividing lines, and as a result, they get along great. The conservatives specialize in faction. And as a result, it's very, very difficult to get us all together. And yet here we are. How'd that work? Well, we call it the Ellerslie experiment. You see, we say, let's pick our North Star. Let's pick what the Bible says is the North Star, and let's all fix our compasses to it. We may disagree with certain peripherals, but if we agree on that which matters most, and that is this is about Jesus and him crucified, all the Old Testament leads to that high mountaintop known as Calvary, and all of the new covenant flows out like a stream of living water out of his side, and it goes into all the land. Everything hinges on what happened that day. And some of you could say, whoa, 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 what about the burial and the resurrection? Well, you don't have a burial and a resurrection if you don't have the cross. The burial and the resurrection have their context in the cross. You know, what about the ascension? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Oh, I know. That's great news, isn't it? Where did he gain that position for you? Because he already had it, by the way. But he came down and made himself a vehicle. He's called the way. And when you enter into Christ, his death becomes your death. And you're in that death. And your old man is crucified. And that burial of his is your burial. And that resurrection is your resurrection. And when he ascends to the right hand of the Father, guess who he's taking with him? He's taking you. The great work of that cross is to bring you through that death, burial, and resurrection to the right hand of the Father. And as it says in Ephesians 2, we are seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And someone could say, well, what about Pentecost? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Pentecost is the purchase of the cross. We now have access to become the dwelling place of the living God. And God has seen fit because we've been invited into that throne room of grace. and We've sat down in the right hand of the Father in Christ Jesus. And now Jesus says, ask the Father. And the Father says, you're going to ask me something? And we say, could I have the, the Holy Spirit? You better believe it. Here it is. And he gives us all that we need to functionally live out this life. We don't have it in our own pockets. We have it in Christ. That's the secret to Christianity. The 17 most Ellerslie-esque messages. If this work were to be described in 17 sermons, Christophany, Jesus and him crucified, the great metropolis of Scripture, canon, the test to prove control, the divine right to rule and control, who is this Jesus? Exploring the infinite depth, height, and length of the nature of Jesus Christ. Grace, the gospel secret unveiled. The anatomy of faith, the pattern for unwavering confidence in the word of God. In Christ, gaining access to the purchase of the cross. Reckoning with truth, grabbing a hold of victory over sin in Christ. Overcoming sin, tasting of the triumph found in Christ. Incorrigibly cheerful, leaping for joy in the darkest of hours. Raising William Wallace, raising the next generation to be world changers. Men of honor, the code of the mighty. As in the ancient days, the power of wrestling prayer. The patriot, the father's heart for the fatherland. Five smooth stones, the return of the discipleship of terebinth-like Christians. The sort of people, who is strange enough to come to nine weeks of this stuff? <laughs> well, they're the hungry, the dissatisfied, and the yearning. And they have an invite to the cave. And everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him. Unto who? David. 
And he became a captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. The picture of David in the Old Testament is an incredible picture of Jesus in the New. And who gathers unto Jesus? Well, those in distress, those in debt, and those discontented. When you're all fine, you don't need a helper. When you don't uh, recognize that you're sick, you don't need a physician. But those of us that recognize our need, we go unto the cave. The cave of Adullam is where David hid out in his 11 years of persecution from Saul. 21 assassination attempts on his life. Who in their right mind would go where he is? Why don't you stay where you're at? Your life will be a lot easier. However, those that came to the cave left everything. They slept in a cave with a rock for their pillow. Why would anyone do that? Why would anyone choose a harder life because they were with David. You know what David means? Beloved. One of the illustrations we give when we give the message Cave of Adullam here at Ellerslie is we find ourselves with an invite. It has a little seal upon it and we break it open, but we do it in private because we have a hunch what this is. And to get an invite from David is, and to open it is high treason. You see, Saul is still the ruler of the land. David is the hunted and despised. And so to actually read a, a communique from David is serious business. However, you've been struggling in your life lately. You've been miserable. You don't want anyone to know it. But you're really dealing with depression. You're dealing with a, a lost sense of meaning. You know there's more. And you see, you've seen those mighty men. You see their joy. You've seen David for brief moments. And you see that gigantic smile upon his face. He has something. There's something in him. And it intrigues you. And you've always wanted to go to that cave and find out what makes him tick. To find out what he has. To gain his strength. But to go to that cave means to leave everything behind. And now you find a little invite on your dresser. You go to it, you pause. You make sure that no one's looking and you open it up. Dear Eric, would you please come and join me? I can't promise you ease, I can't promise you comfort, but I can promise you my presence. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will always be your protector. Will you leave everything and come to me? Why would anyone say yes to that? Why would anyone in their right mind say yes to that? And yet here we are. So many of us at Ellerslie, what have we done? We've forsaken everything we know, and we've traveled to the cave. The mighty men stand on the outside like, hey, who goes there? Um, my name's Eric Ludy. Uh, yeah, what, what are you doing here? Well, uh, the, the, the king invited me. Who invited you? Um, David. He invited you? You're rather small. Do you know how to swing a sword? No, sir. You don't even know how to swing a sword. Why would he invite you? I don't know. But, but he invited me. And you hold up the invite. And what do you hear from behind the mighties? Let him through. It's the voice of your beloved. Let him through. I chose him. 
And his mighties stand back in awe that he would select someone like this. You see, he does not find attractiveness in us from what we can offer, but what he offers us. He says, make yourself at home. My home is your home. I can offer you a rock for a pillow. But as we even go to sleep that first night, such peace is upon us. As we realize, he says to us, I'll watch over you and cover you with songs in the night. And even in the night as we startle awake, he looks down and goes, shh, I'm watching over you. And in the morning, he's kneeling down next to us. And he says, are you ready? Are you ready to learn how to wield a sword? He is our strength. He is our love. And one of the things we say here at Ellerslie is even if heaven were a cave, that's where we want to go. We want to be in the cave, not because it's a cave, but because our beloved is there. And wherever he is, is where we must be. The cave of Adullam. How they arrived at the cave. So what we have here is the basic students answered a question of how they arrived here at Ellerslie. And there was a hundred answers, and so I think we chose, I don't know, somewhere around 15 to 20, and they were all just amazing, so there's no special treatment given to these 15 or 20. But we also didn't give the names uh, of who they were. But I'll go through it, and you'll see what this is as, as we start. How I arrived at the cave. I arrived with roller coaster Christianity. Roller coaster Christianity certainly was a theme when I first came to Ellerslie. I'd be up on a spiritual high one moment, then down in the shadows of doubt in the next. When I arrived at Ellerslie, I was living in sin and not following Jesus as I should. I arrived knowing that there was something more to Christianity, wanting to experience that something more and expecting to experience it. I arrived at Ellerslie uncomfortable with the thought of a faith that required sacrifice. I was desperate and had come to the end of myself. I was not knowing what to expect, and I was dragging my feet about what might happen while I was here. When I arrived at Ellerslie, I was hungry for truth, and I longed for a Christianity that works. Before Ellerslie, the story of my soul was one of cyclical defeat and wondering why God's promises didn't work in my life. I was sick of living the namby-pamby Christian life. I wanted to be equipped for the front lines of the battle. I came to Ellerslie striving after faith, desperately desiring to do something for God. I came to Ellerslie famished, a bruised reed, a smoking flax searching for the richness and strength that is in Jesus and would last forever. I came to Ellerslie with a heart slowly and subtly growing bitter and dry toward Christianity as a whole, aching for intimacy with Christ but not realizing the cost of this daily death. I was tired of a vision without a victory, tired of viewing life through the glasses of insecurity and fear, longing to actually know him. When I came to Ellerslie, my spiritual foundation had about as much stability as a floating boat dock. I journeyed to Ellerslie with the issue of me, I entered with a screaming heart, a scream that would not depart. I walked with an anguished mind, constantly looking back. I looked and saw my problems. I sought and found my sin. There was complete and utter chaos within. Oh, who can save me from the body of death? Who can save me from this pit of hell? What they found at the cave. So now let's go to the right side. My life now sings with thankfulness as I recognize daily the gloriousness of my Lord. I live in his grace and I rest in his love. And oh, how glorious his love is. It makes me want to just dance and leap for joy for him. Now I'm leaving Ellerslie with a clean heart. After experience Ellerslie, Ellerslie, I've realized that something more was simply Jesus Christ. 
And, that's, and that because of the cross, I have access to all the fullness of who he is. I left Ellerslie so in love and in awe of the worthiness of the Lamb that no sacrifice, no suffering, no death would be too great a price to pay for the joy of knowing Gnosko, my beloved Savior. He is more than sufficient. I will never come to the end of him. I feel like I came out of a tunnel where I could only see a small picture of what the Christian life was like into a full-blown world of light all around me. Now I'm a new creation in Christ, and he, lives in and through, and in, and he lives in me through his spirit who gives me victory over my flesh, sin, the world, and Satan. Since Ellerslie, I've discovered the truths that turn the promises of God from text into power. My feet feel firmly planted on the rock, more solid than ever before. He is my strength. Through him is the victory over sin. I left resting in the faithful one, knowing that he had accomplished the necessary work and that my work, my work was to believe. I, have Ellerslie fed, I leave Ellerslie fed by the fullness of Christ and healed with an ignited fire that has brought renewed strength and vigor to my soul and a confidence that Jesus is all I need. I am leaving behind a grave reckoned mine. I depart, I depart filled to the brim with joy and an ever-deepening desire for more of all that he is. My feet have been super glued to the rock of Christ. I am no longer a vulnerable victim to my flesh, my feelings, and my circumstances. I am a victor in Christ. When I left Ellerslie, my foundation had moved to the rock of the living word and the written word. I sold all my sorrow. I sold all my shame. There is no condemnation for me in his name. By his strong arm, he pulled me from the pit of disgrace and into his forever embrace. Worthy is the lamb. I wear his beauty because he put on my shame. Oh, forevermore on my lips shall be his name. Oh, wonder divine, I call him the Christ, mine. Jacob unto Israel. Given up being the heel grabber to become the God grabber. Jacob is an incredible picture of the way most of us have gone about our Christianity. We know there's more. We want the more. Jacob knew there was more. He didn't have it. There was an ache inside of him. So he conned his brother for the birthright through a bowl of red stew. And yet even after he got that birthright, he wasn't satisfied. So he conned his father and his brother for the blessing. And yet even after he got the blessing, he was still miserable. And he was running for his life. And then even after 20 years of conning, of grabbing the heel of the flesh to try and find satisfaction, he found himself at his ends. He did not have what he needed. And that's where many of us find ourselves. We esteem God. We esteem his ways, but we're trying to do it our way. We're heel grabbers. We're layers of snares. Israel is Jacob's new name. But do you know when he got that name? He got that name by grabbing God. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob, heel grabber. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, heel grabber. That's what Jacob means, heel grabber. But Israel, God grabber. For as a prince thou hast power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. Peniel, the place of change. Here at Ellerslie, we oftentimes call it the dark night of the soul. When all has gone dark, all had gone dark in Jacob's life, his brother stood there waiting for him the next day with 400 armed men. His brother had vowed to kill him. 
Jacob has a whole bunch of women and children and flocks with him. He has no hope. So he divides his company into two groups, and that's when he wanders off alone. He's despairing. He has nothing. And who does he run into? He runs into God. Many of us have come into this place despairing. We had nothing, nothing in our pockets, and Esau stands before us tomorrow. We can't do this. We can't fight it. God, what am I supposed to do? He grabs a hold of us. We grab a hold of him. He says, wrestle. I have what you need. Let me go. No. I will not let you go until I get what you have. That is the transformation. Israel is the name of God's people. But true Israel are those that are in Christ. True Israel are those that have grabbed a hold of God and say, you have what I need. Oh, Messiah, in that work on the cross, you have given me everything I need, and I will not let go until I fully understand it, until I fully grasped it, until I fully gained it in my life. We see students who arrive having tried everything they know to gain the blessing. They are desperate for an answer, many ready to give up if they don't find something here. We see them enter into an even darker night as they arrive. We see them grab a hold of God. We see them believe that he alone has what they need. And we see them refuse to let go of him until he gives it. We see them light up with the dawn of a new day. We see their faces radiate with the glow of heaven's love. We see them suddenly become strong, firm, resolute in that which was once doubtful, murky, and unstable. We see them christened with a new name, Israel, the overcomer, the God-grabber. And we see them with a humble limp, lacking any confidence in themselves, setting off in search of the land of promise. You know, we have such an amazing movement of grace here. People have asked, so are you saying, Eric, that this is revival? Well, let me get my next slide to answer that. No. It's just the beginnings of something more. You see, revival, historic revival, will shut down this entire community. We haven't seen that yet, but we've seen something special. But the reason I emphasize this is to let you know we're not satisfied. We've begun to taste something here, and we've seen a real work of grace here. But there's a greater work of grace that we must have in this generation. We're not trying to build barns for ourselves and stick our spiritual experiences in them and just cherish them. Our spiritual experiences and the changed life that we have is so that we can change the world around us. God has given us something so that we can give it to others. Freely he's given it to us so that freely we would give it to others. The return of the Irish elk. Everything starts at Ellerslie on banquet night. And banquet night, we start with a message called the return of the Irish elk. Let me read you about the Irish elk. It's a little different than an elk that you might have ever encountered. The Irish elk. Fossil evidence demonstrates that there, was once, there once was a great elk that roamed Europe and parts of Asia. There once was a mighty church, known as the New Testament church, that once roamed the countryside of Asia, Minor, and Europe. What's happened to it? This mighty, majestic animal stood near seven feet in height just at his shoulders. And with an air of dominance, his regal brow reaching heights of near ten feet. But the crowning jewel of this massive elk was not his height alone, but his astounding rack of antlers, which boasted a span of twelve feet and rose an additional four to five feet above the elk's already superior brow. 
15 feet tall. His rack of antlers laid sideways is bigger than Goliath. That's on top of his head. What is this? This is something that we've never seen. And when we hear about it, we even somewhat doubt that it ever existed. Fossil evidence demonstrates that there was a great and mighty church. The Word of God testifies to it. Fox's Book of Martyrs seals it. We know that something has lived on this earth that was greater than what we have seen. The question is, will we settle into silence now? Or will we fight to see the fullness return? We have been chosen as a generation to rise up and believe. If it says it in the word of God, we believe it. We do not believe that we are a different form of the church that is left without any power, without any resource, but are called to declare the majesty of God. How do you declare the majesty of God without God helping you? We need God, and we need him now. Despite being officially classified as extinct, this is talking about the Irish elk, sightings are still reported. This is the way I look at modern Christianity. True Christianity has now been considered extinct, but may it be said of us, that the real thing is still being cited. It's still being reported. And I pray that someone accidentally turns down this road and runs into an Irish elk. They don't even quite know what to do with themselves when they see it. Some of you, even in being here at this campus for the weekend, will run into some little baby elk. Baby elk sightings. The arrival of true men and true women. What I did is I had, I don't remember how many it is, like five or six men and five or six women at Ellerslie just write anonymously what they have seen here at Ellerslie. So six women or five, six women writing what they saw in the masculinity here at Ellerslie. And then five or six men writing what they saw in the femininity. No names, so everyone could write bluntly and clearly what they've seen. Here's what they said. The men of Ellerslie. The men of Ellerslie. Men who purposely walk in pursuit of a deep, authentic, and practical faith. Men who inspire nobility in everyone with whom they interact. Perhaps the most astounding virtue in a Christian man is the fact that he does not seek to be seen or noticed. The evidence of God's work in someone's life, particularly the men at Ellerslie, is most clearly portrayed when ultimately we are driven to a deeper pursuit of Christ ourselves. They are filled with the spirit of grace. They are marked with manly virtue. They are safe. They are trustworthy. They are filled with a profound spirit of peace. No unrest, no instability, no disunity. They're filled with graciousness. They give, they care, they pray. There is a constancy of honor, a fierce stand against wrong, and a complete upholding of the dignity of a woman that I can honestly say that I've never experienced anywhere else. Witnessing the men of Ellerslie in their everyday lives has given me such a passion for desiring and loving Jesus more and more. They are being spent for the advancement of the kingdom and of the glory of God. The posture of these men is one of giving and not taking, serving and not seducing. They are protectors and not predators. They stand in defense of all that is pure and upright. Deep honor, pure motive, selfless love, and thoughtfulness mark these gentlemen of Ellerslie. They do not spend their time and energy building their careers and fortunes. Men who have allowed the spirit to harness their humor is, men who have allowed the spirit to harness their humor for his purposes rather than their own. They strive for excellence in every arena of life: dress, marriage, singleness, work, Christianity. 
refusing to settle for mediocrity and laziness. These men are willing to do whatever it takes to make those around them free to pursue Christ wholeheartedly. Not just leaving the pathway open to discovering Christ, but being one of the driving forces behind that pursuit. The women of Ellerslie. Ellerslie is graced by the presence of women who have discovered the rich truth that beauty does not flow from within themselves, but rather believe the only beauty they will ever have is a borrowed beauty. The king's daughter is all glorious within, not because she is remarkable in and of herself, but because she is filled with the riches of Christ's grace. They walk with a beauty that comes from bearing the gospel of peace. They are adorned with meekness and humility, taking every opportunity to give of themselves, wash feet, and point others to Christ. The magnification of Christ has become their primary focus. They think not of themselves, but simply desire to be spilled out for their beloved. As the semester progresses, there is a noticeable change in the countenance of these young ladies as they give themselves to Christ more fully, focus on him more steadily, and pursue him more passionately. Not only do they give the elders of the campus a sweet gentleness and a lovely tone, but they declare to the heavenlies that true set-apart femininity is possible in this generation, for it is being lived out by an entire group of women in Windsor, Colorado. The joy of the Lord is their constant meditation, and that incorrigible cheerfulness spills out into every corner of this environment. There is a guardedness, a sense of honor, and a nobility in the way they live their lives. They walk with a confident disposition, yet possessing the purity and simplicity of Mary of Bethany. Their lives of givenness inspire godly masculinity, compelling a man to lay down his life, not only in protection of godly femininity, but for the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must go further. I know it's a strange subtitle. My conversation with the devil. I, I don't know how to articulate this because without sounding strange, but I've had the devil talk with me bluntly twice. Not saying he doesn't talk with me plenty other times, but that's that, you know, that tempting voice, that's, that's, that's a common one. But this is like a deliberate statement from the devil. One was when Leslie and I were about four years into ministry that I felt like the devil told me, give up this ministry and I'll let go of you guys. We were being hounded and harassed. My wife's health was just being destroyed. And so basically the devil made a deal. You give up this ministry, I'll let go. And I didn't understand how spiritual things worked and the enemy knew that. So I remember sitting down with Leslie's parents and we were going to tell them that we were backing out of ministry. And I said, yeah, and I just really feel the devil has just said, just give this up and he'll let us go. I just can't handle this anymore. I just can't go on like this. I can't see my wife suffer like this. And Leslie's mother said, Eric, he's lying to you. You know too much and he won't stop until you're dead. I thought about it. I stood up. And I said, we're not stopping. I think it was, was it the end of the first year? I don't remember exactly what it was. I remember it was a Christmas break. It could have been after the first two semesters. Getting Ellerslie started was yeoman's labor. It was hard work. And after the first semester, my body collapsed. I was doing almost all the teaching. I was doing, we did like 5.30 in the morning prayer almost I think it was like every single morning of the week throughout the whole semester. And we got done with the semester and my body collapsed. And I remember actually thinking, God, have you taken me this far for me to die now? I mean, how pathetic is that? 
And I remember laying on my bed and I couldn't move, very similar to actually the way I felt yesterday. I thought about that too yesterday. And when we got through the first, I think it was the first two semesters, just massive triumph, what God had done, just amazing work of grace. I had another conversation with the devil. Well done. He was clapping. You did it. You got me. You did it, Ludie. Looks like you got this thing set up and started. Well done. Look, you don't actually know what it means to have the devil come at you. You think you do, but you have no idea. Look, let's make a deal. I'll let you have your little Ellerslie. If you tell me, you will not grow it from here. You will not take it any further. I'll let you have it. We'll call it evens. Huh. You know, I don't really like persecution any more than the rest of you. I don't like difficulty any more than the rest of you. Remember telling the staff that story. They could all testify to that. Yeah, Eric did tell me he had that conversation. And I told him right after I finished, I said, we're not stopping. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. We have a job to do. And we, f- we know full and well that we're most likely all going to die doing it. Do we all accept it? Do we all understand that this will cost us everything? We do. Onward march. We do not look for a nice flat piece of ground to pitch our tent stakes. The endless frontier awaits. Awake, awake, O arm of the Lord. I don't know if this is Ellerslie's theme scripture or not. It could be. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. We need something more. And it's not in our pockets. And so the way we access it is through prayer. We have to dig in his pockets. But we have access to those pockets in Christ. That which we need, we have access to. But we must persevere and go after it. I'm not one that is looking for signs and wonders because I enjoy those things. Actually, anyone who knows me knows that I would prefer a church without them. The only reason I would want them is I want God to be seen. God must be seen in this generation. And whatever it takes, I don't, if someone else out there needs a dead man to rise for them to believe, so be it. I don't need it. But if they need it, then dead men are going to rise. Whatever is necessary in this generation for the truth of God's gospel and his name to be revealed... I stand here and I say, it must happen. You guys represent the army that God has equipped. He has given you what you need to go into this world and see it changed. I've said this to you before, but I'll repeat it again. My desire is that you go beyond us as a staff. There's part of me that doesn't want you to go beyond me, but there's a big part of me that does. Same with my kids. I want them to go beyond me. However, as 
you know how the arrangement works, I'm not going to make it easy for you to go beyond me. But I want you guys to take this world by storm for the glory of King Jesus. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you do have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.